Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Ancestor. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Ancestor is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash ancestor. November 8th. Game over? Dante Paglione sat behind his massive white marble desk, watching, waiting. His brother, Magnus, sat on the other side of the desk, reclining in one of the two leather chairs, cell phone pressed to his left ear, eyes narrowed. Magnus's nostrils flared open, shut, open, shut. His thumb constantly spun the Grey Cup championship ring on his right hand. The office lights gleamed off of Magnus's shaved head. To anyone else in the world, Magnus looked perfectly calm. In truth, he was. Always. At least on the surface. But Dante had known Magnus all of his life, and he could tell when something chewed at his little brother's guts. Continue, Magnus said into the phone. Dante looked to his office wall, taking in the series of original Leonardo da Vinci sketches. Da Vinci's work was the epitome of control, of calmness, methodical execution of perfection. Things that Dante strived for in all phases of his life. Elaborate, Magnus said into the phone. His nose flared again, just a little. He sat up slowly, until his back was perfectly straight. Separated by only a year and a half, Dante and Magnus looked extremely similar. Both had violet eyes, a big jaw. Both were tall and solid, but Magnus had spent far more time in the weight room, and it showed. Although the two were instantly recognizable as brothers, the youngest had another key differentiator. He just looked dangerous. The thin scar running from his left eyebrow down to his left cheek was a big part of that look. And when Magnus focused like he was focusing now, staring off into nothing, that cold brain processing all the information, the truth was that Dante's kid brother looked creepy as fuck. Magnus folded the phone, casually slid it into an inside pocket of his tailored sport coat, then leaned back slowly and crossed his left leg over his right knee. The Novozyme facility in Denmark blew up. Blew up? The animal rights activists bombed it? Somewhat bigger than that, Magnus said. Our little NSA hacker friend isn't sure, but she thinks it was a fuel-air explosive. Dante let out a slow breath. He didn't have to ask what that meant. There was only one reason to incinerate a billion-dollar facility. A virus had jumped species. What about Matal and his staff? Dead, Magnus said. He was in the facility. The entire main staff is gone. Dante nodded. Novozyme was Janata's primary competitor. 
Mattal had been their answer to Klaus Ruhmkorff. You could always build new facilities, but you couldn't replace talent like Ruhmkorff or Mattal. In the gold rush for viable xenotransplantation, Novozyme was no longer a factor. This works for us, Dante said. Novozyme is out of the game. Magnus smiled just a little. I'm afraid the game is over. For everyone. The G8 are cooperating to shut all of us down. Farm Girl says Fisher is in charge, and he's starting with us. Farm Girl. The code name for their NSA contact. She would never reveal her real name. Only Magnus spoke with her. Farm Girl's information was always reliable, and she was right. If Fisher was coming their way, it meant major problems. Anger, annoyance, and anxiety all flared up in Dante's chest. Fisher had come after Janata when Galina Poroskova tried to blow the whistle on the surrogate mother-fetal experiments. Dante had hired P.J. Colding and Tim Feely to clean up the mess and get rid of any evidence. If those two hadn't succeeded, Fisher would have shut the company down and probably sent Dante and Magnus to jail. Magnus's smile faded, his blank expression returned. Kind of ironic, isn't it? What is? That we get shut down over a virus-jumping species, and yet our specific line of work ensures that can't happen. If only you hadn't kept that a secret, Dante, the G8 would leave us be. We couldn't announce our method. If we had, Novozyme and Monsanto and the others would have tried to copy it. Magnus shrugged and raised his eyebrows, a gesture that said, oh well. It was bad, but perhaps not that bad. Dante could find a way to make it work. What if we tell them now? I can call Fisher, or better yet, have Colding do it. They have a history. Magnus laughed. (laughs) They're not exactly poker buddies. And anyway, it's too late now. They won't believe our methods are safe, not after Novozyme's accident. It's over. Dante took a deep breath. He let it out, slow and controlled. There was always a way. He had made Janata one of the world's largest biotechs by sitting around waiting for something to happen. He succeeded because he always thought ahead. We knew it might come to this, Dante said. That's why we have the plane. Magnus stared for several seconds. His right hand rubbed at his left forearm, the fabric hissing quietly in the silent room. His nostrils were flaring again. Dante, you can't be serious about actually using that thing. Of course I'm serious. You think we spent $50 million on something so we don't use it when we need it most? Rubkorf is close. They could have an embryo within a few weeks. Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, Magnus said. Funny how I've heard the phrase within a few weeks for the last six months. Rubkorf produces results, Magnus. Venter's artificial bacteria, bringing the quagga back from extinction. Every project he touches ends in success. He's been producing Nobel-quality work since he was 10 years old. Has he also been racking up billion-dollar debts since he was 10 years old? Screw the debt, Dante said. We've invested far too much money to abandon this. Invested? Is that what you still call it? We're broke. The well is run dry. Do you have any idea what it costs to actually fly that contraption? I know. And what about Sarah Puranam and her crew? 
That makes four new noses deep in our business. The more people, the more chance for infiltration. Now you sound like colding. The small smile returned. A rare occurrence, I assure you. But sometimes, colding is right. Every person we add is a risk. Or did you already forget about Galena? Dante's face felt hot. He didn't like to talk about that girl, not with his brother. No, I haven't forgotten her. But we have to bring in Purnam and her crew. We just don't have a choice. Of course we have a choice. We had a choice with Galena. It wasn't what Magnus said, but the way he said it. Dante blinked a few times. That's not funny. Odd, Magnus said. I'm so well known for my sense of humor. Dante shook his head. Surely Magnus couldn't seriously suggest such a thing. This is different. These people are loyal to us, so don't mention it again. Are you sure? Colding and Feely, they're both ex-Usamrid, same department Fisher works for. We wouldn't even have a company if it wasn't for Colding. Magnus shrugged. And Feely? How do you know Fisher doesn't have him on a string? Dante rubbed his temples. What choice do we have? Colding tells me Feely is the only reason Gian and Erica can work together at all. I think we should just end it. And then what? Do you want to tell the Chinese that Gian is gone? That their money is gone? Magnus looked at the Da Vinci sketches. Speaking of money, the Chinese cut us off even before the Novozyme incident. No more spendy-spendy for you, round eye. The whole company is in the red because of Roomcorp's project, and now we're adding costs with Puranam and the plane? How are we going to pay for this? I have an investor presentation scheduled. Five extremely rich individuals. I just have to ask for more than I originally planned. Magnus turned back to look at Dante. Magnus rarely showed emotion, but Dante knew how to spot telltale signs of things like anger, frustration. Magnus had another tell, one he only seemed to express for Dante, the half-raised eyebrows of admiration. Five, Magnus said. Think you can get them all? Does a bear shit in the woods? Magnus smiled again, a genuine one this time. Magnus possessed many skills Dante did not, but what Magnus couldn't do was charm billionaires out of their precious money. Dante could. Every time. This project is too important to stop now, Dante said. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of lives. Hundreds of thousands? Being a little grandiose, don't you think? Maybe you are really talking about one life in particular. Dante's face flushed red. That's not what this is about, he said, although he knew full well that when you got down to brass tacks, when you got down to the real nitty-gritty, that one life, his life, was exactly what it was all about. We're pushing forward, Magnus. This benefits all of humanity. I don't care if we go into the red. This project puts Janata on top. That's what Dad would have wanted. Magnus stared, but then his eyes softened. Just a little, and he nodded. Magnus, these are trying times, but the hardest deal is forged and the hottest fires. Do you have my back or not? Magnus drew a deep breath, then sighed and relaxed. Of course I do. 
always. You know you don't have to ask. I'm just not going to rubber stamp everything you say is all. We wouldn't be much of a team if you did. Please get Puranam and her crew ready and you go with them. Load up one of the local backup herds before you take off. The move will be faster if we don't have to load the Baffin Island cattle. When you're 30 minutes out, call Colding and tell him to gather the staff for an emergency evac. Even if Fisher does pick off those signals, I don't think he'll have time to react. Magnus stood and walked out of the office. Dante would have to watch him. His brother got things done, no question about that, but in stressful times like these, he could make bad decisions. Like the one he'd made about Galena Horoskova. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. November 8th. Running sucks. I hate running, Harold Miller said between big breaths. Yeah, said Matt Cappy Capistrano. I fucking hate running. Sarah Perinam shook her head, then wiped sweat out of her eyes. Three more laps to go. Let's dig. Outside the hangar, winter winds swept across the snowy plains of Manitoba. Inside, however, she kept the temperature nice and warm. The huge plane took up most of the space, but she made sure all equipment was at least six feet away from the hangar walls. That left a nice running track all the way around. Civilians or not, her boys were going to stay in shape. Running sucks, Harold said. Yeah, Cappy said. Running sucks. The twins, as Harold and Cappy were known, had elevated looking pitiful to an art form. Both jogged along, heads lolling a little bit, hands swinging loosely more than pumping. They ran the same, wore the same facial expressions, and repeated each other, like sycophant parrots. They might have actually passed for twins, save for the fact that Cappy was as black as an old Al Jolson caricature, and if Miller were any whiter, his skin would have been transparent. Sarah looked up at the far wall. Alonzo Berea, the last member of their crew, had a half-lap lead. Come on, guys, let's catch so. You catch him, Harold said, as his already pathetic pace slowed to a walk. Yeah, Cappy said. You catch him in shit. It was one thing to piss and moan, another thing entirely to quit. Sarah felt an automatic diatribe of discipline build up in her head, but she stopped it. They weren't in the military anymore, and she wasn't their superior officer. They were all partners, friends. Instead of yelling, she doubled her pace, leaving the twins behind. She reached the corner and turned left, keeping the hangar wall always on her right. Maybe this time she'd catch him. Unlike the twins, Alonzo Brea loved to run. The skinny man could go all day. Sarah pushed her pace even more, cutting his lead in half, then slowed instantly as her cell phone rang. Not with the normal ring, but with Darth Vader's theme from Star Wars the special ringtone she'd set up for Magnus Paglione. Zoe, hold up! Up ahead, 
Alonzo stopped and turned, jogging in place. He wasn't even sweating. Sarah answered. Within seconds, she had her orders. After a year and a half of getting paid for doing nothing but maintenance, it was time to bust out Fred and earn their keep. And she had to wonder if she'd finally see that piece of shit PJ Colding again. November 8th. Not wired that way. Inside the veterinary medicine lab, Erica Hole cursed under her breath. Sixteen straight failures of the immune response test. Klaus had been mad before, but this time, his face had turned so red, Erica wondered if her former lover might have a stroke. Klaus. That asshole. Erica hated the scientific failure, but couldn't help feeling some satisfaction at seeing Klaus so angry. So frustrated. She'd loved him once, back when they worked together on the Quagga Project. Klaus wanted what he couldn't have, and what he'd wanted was for Erica to love only him. But she wasn't wired that way. She had needs, baseline drives and desires that couldn't be ignored and didn't need to be corrected. There was nothing wrong with her. She liked men. She also liked women. If Klaus had been right for her, he would have understood that, accepted it. But no, for all his brilliance, for all his righteous ego and accomplishments, deep down inside, he was a small-souled man who needed to control people. A man who needed to be the only one. She still loved Klaus. She still loved Galena. And she had neither. Heartbreak is bad enough by itself, but a double dose is exponential agony. Galena had been a far better assistant than Tim Feely. Not that Tim was stupid, not at all, but some people just operate on a different level. Tim was competent enough, and he also served other purposes, true, but Galena, he was not. Erica had already been in love with Klaus when Dante hired Galena. A second love had followed. Erica should have told Klaus, but she known full well what he would say. So she'd kept it secret, and it had ended as badly as it could when Klaus caught them in the act. Klaus forced Dante to kick Galena out of the project. And then Galena had asked Erica to leave as well, so they could be together. And what had Erica chosen? The project. At the time, she told herself the project was far more important than romantic dalliances. Oh, that conversation with Galena. That last conversation. How it had shattered the young girl's heart. Galena hadn't taken it lying down. She'd been willing to fight for Erica, or so she said. Galena threatened to blow the whistle on Janata's human line of experimentation, but after a few weeks, Dante and Magnus had bought the girl off. They gave her millions in hush money and sent her back to Russia. Love, it seems, like everything else, has a price. I chose the project. That's what Erica had told herself at the time. In the past year, however, she'd gradually realized the real reason she'd stayed. For Klaus to be near him. But he never forgave her. She had begged him for another chance. He would not cave. He never mentioned the incident, never changed the way he acted around Erica in the lab. In many ways, that was even worse. Now he treated her like a colleague, and a subordinate one at that. 
as if their hundreds of nights of passion had never existed at all. She had chosen the project, and now the project was all she had. Standard cloning projects had a fairly predictable pattern. First, select a cell from the animal you wanted to clone, usually a stem cell, and enucleate it by removing the single cell's nucleus. Second, take an egg from the surrogate mother and enucleate that as well. Third, put the stem cell nucleus into the now empty egg cell, provide an electrical shock to fuse the two, then wait for the single cell to start dividing in a process called mitosis. If that happened, insert the hybrid egg into the surrogate mother and let it develop normally. The method had originated in the legendary cloning of Dolly, the Scottish sheep. Later came the avalanche of cloned species, fish, birds, goats, cattle, even dogs and cats. The process had become so formulated that elements were taught as early as high school. The key to all cloning methods revolved around using the same or similar species for both the egg and the creature to be cloned. For the Ancestor Project, however, the last close relative died out some 260 million years earlier. John's computer program, the thing they all called the God Machine, had provided a genome that actually produced a viable embryo, splitting on its own, undergoing several rounds of mitosis. In a Petri dish, that part, the impossible part, had already been solved. But you couldn't grow a whole animal in a Petri dish until they could trick the cow's immune system to accept the embryo as self, the embryo could not grow into a fetus, and the project was at a standstill. With the quagga, the answer had been comparatively easy. The animal was closely related to zebras. Once they had cultivated a quagga chromosome out of DNA recovered from hair and other remains, they injected it into the enucleated zebra egg, then put the egg back into a surrogate zebra mother. It hadn't worked at first. The zebra's immune system rejected the embryo. Erica had found a way around the problem by isolating the gene sequence that produced the antigens, the offending proteins, then replaced the sequence with the corresponding segment from the zebra's DNA. It had been a small section of DNA, and they still weren't sure exactly what it coded for, but the method worked. With the offending antigenic proteins eliminated, the zebra's body handled the pregnancy normally resulting in the first baby quagga to set foot on the planet in more than a century. But zebra and quagga DNA were over 99% identical. Now, however, they didn't have a mother that was a close genetic match. They had a computer-designed genome and a cow. John's God machine assigned a viability rating to estimate the chances of the hybrid egg passing the immune response test, then developing through surrogate pregnancy all the way to birth. It measured the products of known DNA sequences against those that were lesser known, or even unknown. So far, 65% was the highest rate they'd hit. Somewhere in the remaining 35% were the proteins that triggered the bovine immune system. That 35% amounted to billions of nucleotides, millions of sequences, far too many to eliminate by trial and error. No one knew exactly what genes coded for what traits. She and Jian kept changing these unknown sequences, but couldn't say for sure what the changes would affect. They might be swapping out a protein that affected the color of the animal's eyes, or a protein that was a critical component of brain development. And they couldn't know 
until the animal grew beyond a ball of undifferentiated cells. For the immune system experiment to work, they'd have to reach an 80% viability rating, possibly higher. When they'd started the project with mammal genomes available online, in the public domain, the viability rating had been low. The first 1,000 genomes generated an 11% rating. The 1,000 after that took them to 20%. After they had processed 4,000 mammalian genomes, they'd cracked 45% viability. From there, Janata's bottomless resources started sequencing uncommon mammals, even extinct species. And with each one, the rating ticked a little bit higher. Would Bobby Valentine's four new specimens be enough to get over 80%? And if not, what could she change? Perhaps a new approach and the additional genomes together would get them over the hump. Part of Erica hoped for success, but a stronger part hoped for failure. The last thing she wanted to see was Dr. Klaus Rumkorf rewarded for being a heartbreaking, small-minded prick. You have been listening to Ancestor by Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.